We're talking cat people curses, we're talking questionable accents, and we're talking pirate Trezor. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking some weird car sexual fetish thing. Oh, wow, yeah. (laughs) These movies truly have something for everyone. It came out of nowhere, but everyone, we are discussing Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island from 1998, and its 2019 sequel, Scooby-Doo, exclamation point return to zombie island you know i think you could have hit that exclamation point harder should you do a second take no i'm sorry scooby-doo return to zombie island it's actually really weird sometimes it's a colon sometimes it's an exclamation point and sometimes it's nothing it's just there I mean, gosh, you'd think with a 50-year franchise they could get their shit together. I will confess, Joe, I have not been as nervous going into an episode as I am about this uh, as I am about this one since our very first episode on Scream. Because oh you know how we talked about on that one, like where, oh, it's like such a seminal piece of work and we both love it so much. And so as like, quote unquote, experts on the matter, we don't want to like look like we're idiots. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I feel about this property. Because as you know, and probably most of our listeners, I'm a big fan of scooby-doo and most of its iterations um you know everything is scrappy-doo aside (laughs) well yeah nobody likes scrappy-doo come on the creators don't even like scrappy-doo this i'll 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 bring in some fun tidbits about scrappy-doo during the episode but (laughs) (laughs) well just don't fuck this up okay it's fine i'm not gonna fuck it up but y'all listen to me if i get something wrong about scooby-doo in this fucking episode don't correct me, because just trust that I'm going afterwards to look it up online. <laughs> he will self-flagellate later. I will absolutely be like, God damn it. So it's fine. I'm also editing this. So if I really fuck up, I can try to fix it. Anyway, so but before we get into the films, uh, we do have a special guest on this episode. And it's someone who will hopefully be more on my side of things than your side of things tonight, Joe. Ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, she is the senior editor and SEO at Collider. She's also oversees horror for that website, and of course, she's the co-host of the Witching Hour podcast. Please welcome Haley Fouch. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? I'm so good. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming. I always meet people that are like, oh yeah, I watched Scooby-Doo as a kid, but like no one's like really like into it. And with Zombie Island, I think there's like a specific subset of people that even if they haven't seen it recently, like they have a very big passion about it because they grew up watching it in the late 90s. Absolutely. I am really big on Scooby-Doo and I grew up watching most of it and I do sort of stay in touch with some of it. But like that movie 
I think, yeah, like you said, if you grew up in a certain time, that movie has a really special place in your heart. And I was talking with Joe earlier today because he's a little bit older than, like, he's just barely, like, in, in a generation gap where he was more into the cartoons of the early 90s, um, like like those X-Men, uh, Spider-Man, and you said a little bit of Batman, right, Joe? A little bit of Batman, yeah, and then my kind of, like, weird alternative version of Scooby-Doo would maybe be the Gargoyles series, which mm-hmm. is, like, firmly mid-90s. Right. And I think because I'm thinking like Zombie Island was 98. So I would have been nine. I actually remember they released it on VHS in September of 98. And I I was like so excited to go to Blockbuster and like grab this fucking thing. And my Blockbuster didn't have it. And I cried. Oh, no. (laughs) But then Cartoon Network was like, because we'll get into it in a bit. But Warner Brothers did spend $50 million promoting this movie. Cartoon Network was going to premiere it on TV on Halloween of 98. So I, for the first time in my life, like didn't want to go trick-or-treating because I wanted to stay home and watch Scooby-Doo on (laughs) Zombie Island. (laughs) That's when you just set the VCR and go. Well, that's what what we did. So I went trick-or-treating and I was miserable the entire time. And I got back and my mom had already watched it and i was like don't tell me anything about it and i was again fucking nine-year-old trace <laughs> it sounds like i maybe fall like right in between you guys because i i'm a little older than you trace mm-hmm. but i was so on and we'll talk about this i'm sure but i was so on the buffy train at the same time that mm-hmm. any spooky mystery obsession just full obsession. And I, we definitely have to talk about that connection because, I mean, obviously, you know, they call themselves the Scoobies and Buffy and that's, there's a lot of influences in various forms of pop culture, but especially horror um, from Scooby-Doo. And I think it's just really worth talking about. And of course, there's some queer content in there as well. So what I actually wanted to talk about too was kind of, um, I don't know, like, like Scooby-Doo is a form of gateway horror. Like, it, we always talk about that a lot. Is like, oh, like what? Or people ask us, you know, what got you into horror? For both of y'all, do y'all remember what that was? Even if it's not Scooby Doo, I do. It was, in fact, partially Scooby Doo. It was, in <laughs> fact, partially Buffy and the way they both embrace oh. the monster of the week. And uh, I mean, Buffy sort of taught me the language of horror over my growing years, and Scooby Doo taught me like the very gentle version of that in my younger years. Um, And then I guess like the horror movie that was the first real horror movie I saw that gave me the proper nightmares and stuff was Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors. And then I was Mm. hooked. Hooked. Were you allowed to watch a lot of like R-rated movies as a child? No, not at all. That was at a sleepover (laughs) and my dad was pissed. (laughs) God bless sleepovers. What are the children doing now if they don't have sleepovers? Because that was like the fix if you could not watch horror at home it was like well i'm gonna go over to justin's house (laughs) but see though here's my thing though and i guess there's parental controls now but it's so much easier to access content exactly um and so i mean i'm thinking okay if i was growing up today it'd just be porn and horror all the time it'd be so easy but again there's parental controls and i'm sure my mom would have been all over that shit (laughs) so hypothetically trace this was your entry your gateway horror entry Yes, and I'm sorry, I actually also, I'm like flustered. I I failed to mention too that we're also doing these films because this week, the, well, it was going to be the most recent theatrically released Scooby-Doo film (laughs) (laughs) was coming out, uh, and that's not the case anymore, it's going VOD, and actually as I was going through a lot of these Scooby-Doo films on Wikipedia, there's a whole section for like, oh, the various forms of media, and there's a section for the direct-to-video animated films that start with Zombie Island, and there's 33 of them, by the way. Oh my Um, god. But guess what's number 34 now? Uh, Scoob! 
<laughs> not by design though i know well the thing is too it's supposed to kick off like a cinematic universe of Hanna barbera stuff and so i mean i hope it's successful but we'll see well if it takes the trolls to root or trolls world tour or whatever the fucking incarnation <laughs> of <that laughs> bastardization uh you know if it performs well i'm sure we'll continue to see scooby-doo and probably on the big screen when and if theaters ever reopen I think so, too. I'm also in the minority that I like the live-action films, but, I mean, for very different reasons. The interesting thing about Scoob, before we move on from that, and what you Mm -hmm. said about the shared universe, I did an edit bay visit for that, and it was so obvious that they're really not doing horror at all. Oh, no. They have a scene that seems to be at the beginning of the film that's sort of a Halloween night spooky where they all Mm -hmm. met as kids, And then it becomes more of an adventure sci-fi superhero type movie, which is interesting. And that's that's the vibe I'm getting to. And I think as we discuss how the franchise has evolved from Zombie Island to its sequel, it's going to be telling why they're doing it that way. Because Zombie Island is, for Scooby-Doo, so dark. It's the outlier, right? It is. And I mean, like, you can say that Witch's Ghost, which came a year afterwards, is also equally dark, but that one had some... Well, I'll, I'll wait until we get to production for that, because the, the, I actually think the four films, the three films that came after Zombie Island, they're all fascinating in their production, uh, because they're all done by the same animation studio, uh, Mook Animation, over in, I think, Tokyo. But um, it's... Yeah, it's a lot of corporate... I don't want Interference. Wanna, yeah, it's a lot of interference, and it's very much like there are some people that want, like, we don't want it to be too scary for the target audience, and so Warner Brothers is like, no, tone down the horror. And it makes sense that they're doing a cinematic universe for Scoob, because it's like, okay, well, now they're bringing in other properties of Hanna-Barbera that aren't, you know, spooky mysteries, so they have to cater to those potential audiences as well. Mm-hmm. But it does make me nervous. Okay, so here's the thing, and not to get too off the thread, but like, You're fine. isn't this... Sort of what they did with the DC movies where they put the shared universe ahead of the characters and that didn't work. So they had to go back to what people liked about the individual franchises. And I'm just, yeah, like you, I'm a little, hmm, we'll see. I, I, yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic because I want to like it um, and I will be writing a review for it. But yeah, I'm just... I mean, honestly, also with the voice cast, and I get why they went, because um, in case y'all don't know everyone, um, they are not, they did not bring back any of the original voice actors, except for Frank Welker, but not voicing Fred, voicing Scooby, because um, that makes sense. He, well, he's been voicing Scooby-Doo since 2002, so that's fine, but he's also been voicing Fred since 1969. <laughs> just, just a bit of a history there, then. <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, there's probably like some like spaceship sounds that he's also the voice of. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, th- this Scooby-Doo was probably my gateway horror. Like, I mean, the movie that I saw was probably Hocus Pocus. Like, that's probably the first thing that like really like scared me as a kid. But I watched so much Scooby-Doo growing up. And I think it's also why I like Scream so much is because of the whodunit aspect. Even though you always know it's a man in a mask. Well, sometimes. Um, <laughs> it really like turned me on to whodunits, which I mean, it's just like a subset of the horror genre. So growing up as a kid, that's just kind of all I watch because like Haley, I wasn't allowed to watch R-rated horror movies um, or R-rated movies in general. So it was a good comfort for me. And in these troubled times going back and it, it's so it's this and I'm going back and like playing Pokemon. Like it's like I'm reverting into my <laughs> fifth grade self in this quarantine time. <laughs> well, let us know when you hit puberty again. Uh, it'll it'll probably be after this is all done, but I'll let you know. <laughs> But yeah, so, okay, I, I 
overall, I want to talk about too, the, just the enduring appeal. Right, I'm going to read this. It might be a little long. I might have to cut it down in post. So just bear with me. But it's it's a piece from The Atlantic, and it's actually for the May 2020 issue. And I'm assuming it's because Scoob is coming out. But it's written by Christopher Orr, and it's called The Secret of Scooby-Doo's Enduring Appeal. And kind of, it, it asks the question, why is this still popular after 50 years? Like, why are, is this getting made? You know, you don't see fucking Marmaduke, you know, having... 14 different TV shows and two live action films and 34 fucking directed DVD animated movies. So uh, Christopher says a telling clue can be found in the show's timing. It debuted during a period of acute generational conflict and anxiety, which was 1969, uh, the Vietnam and Nixon years, the never trust anyone over 30 years, whether by accident or design, the makeup of the mystery Inc gang played perfectly into that moment. And they go through like talking about like, you know, Oh, like all the characters and what they represent, blah, blah, blah. What better way to toy below the surface with the cultural tensions of the late 60s and early 70s? Juxtapose two borderline misfits in Velma and Shaggy, who are perhaps experimenting a little with sexuality and drugs. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> well, in the live-action movie, actually, um, again, as we'll go on, like the, the franchise gets more meta as it goes on, which I think is a wise decision. But the, the live-action movie definitely has a pot joke. Um, and there was a lesbian kiss between Sarah Michelle Gellar and Linda Cardellini in that movie that was filmed. Um, but oh, they but it's not, not in there, is it? No. It, it was supposed to be a thing, because in that movie, they both get possessed by demons, and they were supposed to kiss to get the demons out of them, um, but they did not fly with Warner Brothers. Cowardice. I know. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm experimenting with sexuality and drugs, uh, with two grown-up stand-ins for the more conventional sort in Fred and Daphne, and then let the offbeat characters consistently, yet all in good fun, one-up the establishment types. Even the show's signature line, and I would have gotten away with it if, it not, if not for you meddling kids, sounds like it could have been uttered by Richard Nixon. But... The genius of the young mystery hunters is that they were not prisoners of their era. You don't have to envision the group's internal dialectic as the counterculture versus the establishment. The show's longevity demonstrates that the metaphor works equally well as outsiders versus popular kids, or, most primarily, as children versus parents. Indeed, over the past 50 years, the Scooby-Doo characters have become almost archetypal. Joseph Campbell-worthy portraits of teenagerdom. Watch just about any ensemble teen show or movie, and you'll find your Freds and Daphnes, often as foils or outright villains, and your Velmas and Shaggies. Perhaps no one applied this paradigm more self-consciously than, than writer-director Joss Whedon in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which winked at its predecessor by imagining a group of teen monster fighters led by a superhero version of Daphne. Buffy and her pals even refer to themselves as the Scoobies. Whedon later claimed, tongue only partly in cheek, that all great fiction is Scooby-Doo-like. Some big fucking britches, Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and that's the thing, right, though? I mean, like, it, on the surface, yes, it is a really stupid, silly, formulaic process, yet it's been so influential. I mean, I think it would have to be to have had the legacy and the longevity that it's had. I think it's also, like, there's something so simple, and I don't mean simple as in stupid, I mean simple as in, like, it's so applicable. Like, you really can identify with these characters, their situations are interesting and enviable, and, like, it, it's just something that easily transfers between the generations and can adapt easily to new culture, I think. And simple, I think, is a really good word for it, because traditionally, and part of what makes zombie island so special is that it's a an exception to this is like the characters don't have a lot of arc or backstory or complications it's really more about unveiling the mystery and it is these archetypes 
that you can imprint yourself on too. And I want to talk about this more later when we get into like the queer coding and interpretations of it. But I think that's part of why like so many different characters in the show have been adopted by so many different queer cultures and interpretations. I mean, especially, well, okay, maybe I'll save it for when we do want to talk about that, unless you want to talk about it before we get into the movies, or you want to talk about it during the films. I'm I'm open to either one. I mean, I guess it would make sense to tie it to the movies, since so much of the villains in right. that film are, like, so lesbian. <laughs> I mean, they're cat ladies, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, cat cults who live alone on an island for centuries, and we're just happened to be off one night together. And (laughs) seemingly never have sex with any men, so we can only assume what they're doing in that big-ass plantation house. So, okay, well then I'll kind of lead us into how Zombie Island came to be and why it was so important, because I think that maybe some people may not understand the significance of this film. And granted, if you're not a Scooby fan, it probably won't be significant, but... I mean, that was me, right? Like, you guys are the Scooby-Doo fans, and I was the Scooby noob. Oh, speaking of which, what was your gateway if it wasn't Scooby-Doo? Mine was actually books, so I got into horror principally through Fear Street and Christopher Pike books. Um, Okay, so yeah, basically just to kind of set this up, though. So, early 90s, uh, Scooby-Doo was kind of in the same place that horror was in general. It wasn't successful. Now, granted, horror, you know, we've talked about this a couple times. It's just overload. You know, all your major franchises were dying. Scooby-Doo in 1991 was just finishing its eighth iteration, a pup named Scooby-Doo, which, by the way, is vastly underrated and very, very fun. (laughs) But public uh, interest had waned. So Scooby-Doo was actually fully removed from the Saturday morning lineup. He was just kind of gone. But then later in 1991, and this is the weird thing, this is your boring factoids, but I think it's fascinating, Turner Broadcasting System purchases Hanna-Barbera to fill programming at a new 24-7 cable channel called Cartoon Network. Never heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) It, it, it Basically, like, the reruns of Scooby-Doo topped the ratings for Cartoon Network. It was insane. Okay, I actually don't think this is boring at all. I have this all in my notes, too, and I'll add the little detail that within, like, two or three years of launching... Nobody thought Cartoon Network would be shit, but it ended up being the fifth most popular cable channel. You know what's? I was reading because so, I was watching some Married with Children reruns um, on Hulu last night, <laughs> and it was Fox's like first sitcom that they'd ever like done, and no one, and it was also a new network, uh, and so they had like there was no faith that Fox would be able to do anything, and not everyone in the country even had access to it, and it, and because of Married with Children, like that helped Fox become like a like a stable network yeah i mean it often there's usually a flagship show that will end up helping to solidify a network in this case i'm not at all surprised that something like scooby-doo would be that for something like the cartoon network because it's all steeped in nostalgia right so if you have to program content and then you've got something that you know is going to be palatable for like a large generational gap then you can put in something like scooby-doo and have it carry a network but it's quantity too, right? Because I mean, as a like, yeah. Puppet of Scooby Doo was the eighth version of this fucking cartoon dog, and it's bizarre to me. And I honestly, even me, I didn't realize how many different shows there were. It's kind of insane. I think that's also part of the generational appeal is they keep reinventing it, but they keep it more or less the same. It's the same, generally pretty simple characters you can project yourself onto. But they give give each new generation a slightly different visual style, a slightly different type of mystery. And they do update it with the times, right? And they're also good about experimenting. Like, um, 
you know, uh, 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo is one, like one of the f- first like serialized versions of the show, um, which they would later make good effect with, with, um, uh, it's a series called Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated, which was in like 2010 to 2012 or around there, where they also serialized it and had relationships carry over and they had Fred and Daphne dating and they were, you know, self-referential with previous versions of the franchise. So, right. Which would make total sense for that particular time period when serialized television was like really dilly go. Mm-hmm. And it's awesome. Oh, it's... Like, <laughs> I, I, I tell adults to go watch that show, because I'm like, it's... I, I sent Joe the whole, like, thing where it was like, oh, it homages horror movies, like Nightmare on Elm Street, it gets really Lovecraftian, like, it's really funny. <laughs> like, yeah. it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. So, yeah, okay. So, flash forward a couple years, 1996, Turner merges with Time Warner, and Davis Doy, who was in charge of Hanna-Barbera, was asked by Warner executives to do to develop new projects. And after referencing a Q score, which is a measurement of the familiarity and appeal of a brand, celebrity, and company, blah, 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 blah. Basically says, oh, do, do families like this? Like, do, pe- do they like it? Or do people know it? Like, yes. if you say Scooby-Doo, do people know who you're talking about? Exactly. So they, they were like, oh, hey, uh, Davis, do Scooby-Doo because it has a very high Q score and it's also approaching its 30th anniversary, which would have been in 1999. So, okay. So basically, uh, they bring in screenwriter Glenn Leopold, who had been with the Scooby-Doo franchise since 1979, Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo. Wouldn't have been my first choice, but okay. Um, <laughs> Everybody's got to get their start somewhere. Scrappy-Doo. I mean, well, okay, I don't know if it, was, if it was his idea to, like, create Scrappy-Doo, but there's that period of, like, the late 70s to early 80s where Fred, Daphne, and Velma weren't in the picture anymore, and it was just Scooby, Scrappy, and Shaggy. Oof. Yeah. Those sound like some lean years. <laughs> I did not enjoy them. I mean, that's also why <laughs> that's also why Scrappy's the villain in the first Scooby-Doo movie. And there's, like, there's always these running gags, but there's one in Mystery Incorporated where they come across, like, a wax figurine of Scrappy. And Daphne's like, whatever happened to him? And Fred's just like, we agreed never to talk about him again. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> okay, so they, they outsource the animation to Japanese animation studio Mook Animation. And uh, they, they get contacted to work on the film. Doi had a relationship with the team because they had previously collaborated. And I need you all to tell me if you all remember this. On something called SWAT Cats? Nope. No. Okay, that's going to be important because the plot of Zombie Island was pulled from an unaired or unfilmed episode of SWAT Cats. Right. But they also worked on Johnny uh, Johnny Quest, so you can see a lot of the animation similarities mm-hmm. between something like Johnny Quest and Zombie Island. Right. But here's the thing. There was no schedule for this production. All they were told was, hey, make a Scooby-Doo property, let us know when it's done. It's kind of an experiment. Oh my god. <laughs> this team had complete creative control over Zombie Island, other than, you know, make it family friendly. And that's it. So I think that also will, as we get into Zombie Island and like what it is, it will kind of show the like why this film is the way it is and why nothing was the same afterwards. <laughs> so yeah, it's directed by Jim Sinstrom, who'd worked on Scooby projects beginning with in 1983 with the new Scooby and Scrappy Doo show, because we needed that. And <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing and I, I, so he gets sold directing credit but also Hiroshi Aoyama and Kazumi Fukushima also who, who they worked at Mook Animation they also directed this film but don't get the credit so I don't know what the deal was there but that's kind of all I could figure out it sounds like some bullshit yeah, yeah but <laughs> it well in all because the next three were um were all uh, which is uh which is ghost alien invaders and cyber chase they're also all directed by stenstrom and he again only gets the director's credit so i don't know maybe it's um some racism oh we could talk about some of that a little later too 
Oh, <laughs> trust. <laughs> you mean a movie set in New Orleans and not a single black person to be seen? Oh, something like that, yeah. <laughs> so it was uh, Jim Stenstrom's idea that the monsters be real, um, because obviously in previous outings, the bad guys have always been um, in rubber masks. The writer, Glenn Leopold, disagreed, saying, no, we need to keep it traditional. And Stenstrom, and Joe, this is where you're going to come in, he felt that the man-in-a-mask approach worked for a half-hour television episode, but it might grow tiresome over feature film length. Mm-hmm. Which is how I feel about Return to Zombie Island. But... Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, and um, the only other thing is that the group had enlisted the assistance of Iwao Takamoto, the original designer of Scooby-Doo, who was still on salary at Hanna-Barbera for advising on scenes. Translation, they walked the dailies over to his poolside mansion and said, hey, does this look okay to you? Yeah. <laughs> And then for casting, we had Frank Welker back as Fred. BJ Ward is Velma. She had played Velma in a Johnny Bravo crossover episode, and that is what got her this role. <laughs> uh, Mary Kay Bergman, who she is unfortunately dead now. She committed suicide in 1999. Um, but she is the voice, original voice of a lot of the moms in South Park, Mrs. Proflovsky, Mrs. Cartman, and um, also the voice of the clitoris in the South Park movie. So that's really fun. But she's Daphne. Radio personality Scott Innes is Scooby-Doo, because Don Messick, the original uh, voice of Scooby-Doo, passed away in 97. And then Billy West, who's most... He's known for his voiceover work, but also mostly known for Futurama. He's Shaggy, because original voice actor Casey Kasem went vegan and demanded that Shaggy also be vegan. And when they said no, he wouldn't do the movie. Favorite trivia. That's my favorite factoid. Thank you. How could it get better than that? (laughs) Well, the thing is, they were like... Oh, it's ridiculous because, A, we've already, like, animated some of the film, and we've already done a thing where Shaggy and Scooby are eating crawfish, and they eat a fucking Subway sandwich. Well, Scooby does. I, I mean, the, but here's the weird thing, because as I was going through some of these movies this week, Kaysom came back to the role in some of these movies after Cyber Chase. I think maybe he recognized he doesn't have that kind of leverage. <laughs> I mean, he is Casey Kasem, America's radio announcer, but at the same time, I mean, I don't think that you can impose your your vegan beliefs on an animated character especially if they just say oh okay do you realize that there's a 50 year franchise we can literally outsource it to about a hundred other voice actors (laughs) (laughs) which i don't know much about voice acting but it's fascinating watching all these different movies watching the voice actors change from film to film which for the most part like i mean like you know mindy khan was doing velma from like 02 to 2015 and now it's been kate micucci since 2015 Matthew Lillard's taken over Shaggy since 2010. But still, like, it's amazing how they can get the voice right between all these characters, for the most part. Right. Before I turn it back over to you, Joe, I'll just say, yes, $50 million promotional push. Um, The marketing emphasized this time the monsters are real, even though they had been real before, but that's whatever. The uh, They believed the character's iconic nature would generate strong sales and deserved equal visibility to a theatrical release. And at that point, I'm kind of like, why don't you just put it in theaters? Uh, probably. Oh, sorry, when? what year was this again? This is 98. So like September of 98. Does anyone remember what year Mask of the Phantasm went to theaters? Mm. I think that oh. was like 94. The, the Singe or the... Uh... 93. There we go. Okay, so the the disappointment of that box office failure may still be wafting over more traditionally animated films that aren't associated with Disney. Question. So I actually haven't seen that movie, but I've heard it's amazing. And it's, it's amazing. I, I yes. have the Blu-ray set of Batman the Animated Series, and it comes with that, so I just need to watch it. But So you're a fan of that, I take it. I'm a huge fan, yeah. Okay. Okay, so, so th- this, by the way, is my Mask of the Phantasm, Joe. There you go. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, but yeah, they had tie-ins with Campbell's Soup, which I remember doing... Oh, and SpaghettiOs, because this is the important thing. I mean, it's not important, but whatever. I There was a contest on a SpaghettiOs thing. Not a contest, but you could like fill in like a thing, and you had to send in you know, your proof of purchase of SpaghettiOs, and they would send you a Scooby-Doo soundtrack. And I totally did that, and I got that CD. I was so happy. Oh, yeah, because you talked to Big Dame about the soundtrack being a thing, right? Yeah. Well, this soundtrack is a thing. And Haley, I need to know your thoughts. Do you agree on the soundtrack about this film? Because it's a banger. Oh, my God. I haven't stopped talking about it since I rewatched it. It's in, like, <laughs> it's outrageous how often I am uh, bringing up Terror Time. It's Terror Time again. I listen to it a lot when I'm, well, I have a, I have a Scooby-Doo playlist on my phone, but. Um, of course you do. <laughs> Joe, now as someone who doesn't normally notice music, did those, there's two big montages in this film. Right. Did you, did you notice, did the music stand out to you at all? Or were you like, this is just some like Green Day punk wannabe shit? No, no. I mean, I couldn't have told you like who the artists were, but in terms of like a rock set montage, those do stand out. It's something that I had come to associate with this particular franchise. Like I know that they do chase scenes set to rock music or to, to like lively music, but, uh, at least Terror Time stood out to me. That's good. The Ghost is here is really fun. They were both performed by a band called Skycycle, and I do not know who they are, but they were a band that existed. <sighs> Skycycle. We don't know who now? they are, but they are legends. They, <laughs> they are legends for a legion of now, like, early to mid-30-year-olds. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Print that on the tombstone. You also have Third Eye Blind doing the theme song for this film. Right. Which, by the way... Very um, hot at that point. I get... I, I don't... I could not tell you. They were. That was like right at the time that they were peaking. <laughs> but just so you all know, for the other theme songs from Witches Ghost to Alien Invaders to Cyber Chase, the theme songs were Billy Ray Cyrus, Ooh. Jennifer Love Hewitt, and three members of the B-52s. Oh. Okay. So we peaked with Zombie Island, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, pretty Ooh, much, I'm going to yeah. get Jennifer Love Hewitt hate mail. <laughs> Come on, she was not a singer. She tried. She, she tried so sings hard. it really well. And you know what? She had that song from I Still Know You Did Last Summer, which is fine, I think, if I remember correctly. Didn't she release no. an album called Let's Go Bang? Am I hallucinating I that? so. No, oh my I think God, you are correct. Awesome. <laughs> so many choices. <laughs> yeah, that is an al- studio album by Jennifer Love Hewitt. Her sweet. second studio album. <laughs> yeah. Let's all download that after we finish recording this. Um, okay, my last thing, and I promise I'm done. Um, so they released it on v- VHS September 22nd, 1998. Because of the cost of production and that fucking marketing campaign, the tape retailed at 1995, which was higher than other direct-to-video titles of that era. It would have been the price of a, you know, a theatrically released title. Right. And yet, sales still exceeded studio expectations. This movie was a huge, enormous hit, which is why there are 32 more films after it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you actually have a gross, or is that something that they don't really report on? Nah, it was in a Billboard article, and it was a paywall, so I didn't pay it. Okay, fair enough. If somebody knows, let us know. Yeah, I don't know if they actually would have even released the numbers, because, I mean, at at the end of the day, I mean, I guess... Do, do people report really on... Uh, I'm not going to ask that. I'm sure people report on home video numbers now. Oh, they do. Yeah, because people track Disney uh, direct-to-video releases as well. Oh, okay. So again, I think Return to Zombie Island is fine, but I think the disappointment I felt when I first watched it was the same disappointment I felt watching the direct-to-video sequel to The Little Mermaid. Which is? A really bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Just blanket statement. I have not seen that, but I feel like the less we say about Return to Zombie Island, the better. Well, 
you're gonna we're gonna have some fun because Joe prefers it. <laughs> no. Well, yeah, because I don't have the investment in this. So, Zombie Island, the original, was just very childish to me, and mm-hmm. it felt really but, long as an adult. <laughs> but okay, sorry. No, it's good. It's good to have that opinion to like a, a, from an outsider. But it's that that opinion is fascinating to me because to me, Return to Zombie Island is way more childish than Zombie Island is. Concur. Uh, see the meta humor. I find more palatable as an adult. Well, yeah, because there is meta humor. Like, Zombie Island has a little bit of self-referential humor, but it's not, I mean, it's not the level that you get in return. But I I see how that would appeal to you. I'm going to make one super cunty remark, which is that if you did a drink every time Shaggy says like in Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island, your liver will explode before the 30-minute mark. Challenge accepted. But that's the point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, it's it's painful. <laughs> I love that this this tra- like hallmark trait of this character. <laughs> no, it's called something like you can have a trait, but you can't do it in every single line of dialogue. Right, it's like a Velma said, much. jinkies every other word. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to jump the thread ahead too much, but w- because of what you said about the meta stuff really working for you, it's interesting because I have in my notes like... I thought that was an example of them taking the meta stuff too far. Too far. And like the difference between Scream and Scream 3, where the meta gags puncture the tone. Oh, yeah. Hang on to that. Yes. No, <laughs> that's yeah. a full conversation. Okay. And, and, and I was actually happy that I watched The Curse of the 13th Ghost because it, that's the film that came out before Return to Zombie Island. And it does a similar like retcon thing with the plot. And it also goes heavy with the meta humor, but it's better in that movie for me than it was in Return to Zombie Island. But we'll get there. Okay. (laughs) All right. So here is your very abbreviated plot recap of Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. After breaking up in the wake of an endless stream of men in mask adventures, the Scooby gang reunites to celebrate Daphne's birthday as she and Fred embark in search of content for her new TV show. Which is also really, really like... I think that's also why this film was such a big deal, was because, I mean, you know, you had uh, seven years since the last iteration, and even then, the last one with with the whole gang as adults, I think, was in the early 80s. So this kind of played off that real world happening of like, oh, they broke up, and now this, this is the reunion movie. Right. They're back, and if you miss them, this is your opportunity to catch up. Mm-hmm. So the trip takes them to New Orleans, where they meet Lena Dupree, who tells them of a ghost-haunting Moonscar Island. They then travel by ferry to the island, in the process upsetting grumpy fisherman Snakebite Scrubs, who is hunting for catfish. Go uh, Mark Hamill. <laughs> <laughs> With like three lines. Yeah, what a what a thankless role. <laughs> is that the accent you were referring to? No. Oh, my... a jock? The no, the oh, it's Adrian Barbo. Yes, <laughs> it is atrocious. It's not great. Yeah, so they arrive at Miss Simone Le <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it was Gambit from the X Men TV show the entire time for me. Oh, my sherry, who like, brought oh. this this dog in here? <laughs> my precious cat. <laughs> So they arrive at Miss Simone Lenoir's house, and after adventures involving both cats and hot chilies, they find proof of a ghost who carves a warning in the wall and dangles Velma in the air. After another cat chase... Oh, so much repetition in this movie, folks. Oh my god, it's for kids. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, Scooby and Shaggy come across a reanimated skeleton, and suspicion begins to fall on groundskeeper Bo, who becomes part of Daphne and Fred's lover's quarrel along with Lena. I love that in this child movie, we've got a weird, like, quad, quad angle? No, square? Love square? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I obviously failed geography. After more wait. incidents. <laughs> wait, wait, no. I said geography, Ge- didn't I? Geometry. Yes, sir. I was about to say geology, and that was also not correct. <laughs> <laughs> we have been out of school for way too long. And also drinking. Now I'm afraid to say what After. I think it is. <laughs> no, it's it's geometry. Geometry. It's geometry. There we go. <laughs> Insert that gift of that confused looking woman with like looking at the triangle or whatever on anyway (laughs) after more incidents with zombies and a hidden cavern under the manor it is revealed that not only are the zombies real but that jacques the fairy captain as well as lena and miss lenoir are all cat people who cursed the pirates who killed their family 200 years ago and in the process they accidentally wound up cursing themselves so they have to sacrifice people each year when the harvest moon rises So part of the gang is held in place by wax effigies while Scooby and Shaggy flounder about. Uh, But they distract the were people long enough to close the sacrificial window, at which point both the zombies and the were people turn to dust. So the whole time Daphne has been using this as videotaped footage for her show, but of course the camera gets lost in the bog. So with no videotaped record of their adventure, they ask Bo to return to the mainland with them, and the adventure of Zombie Island is closed for now. So before we dive in, I realize I buried the lead with some of these voice actors. Um, A, first of all, screenwriter Glenn Leopold, also a co-writer on the slasher movie The Prowler, which is kind of awesome. Billy West, who's Shaggy, I mentioned Futurama, but he's also the voice of Doug in Doug. (laughs) (laughs) And Bugs Bunny in Space Jam. Um, And always Stimpy, sometimes Ran in Ren and Stimpy. Um, And Mary Kay Bergman is the voice of the parrot in Deep Lucy. What? (laughs) I'm not kidding. Oh my god. So, this movie. Mm -hmm. I was was gonna let y'all talk, because I've been hogging the mic the whole time. Haley, what are your thoughts on original flavor Zombie Island? Oh, yeah. Well, I love it, but, like, I was always going to love it because I loved it when I was young and at that age where everything you love is incorruptible and you'll love it for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. But I did actually enjoy revisiting it quite a bit. This isn't my first time revisiting it recently. Uh, Speaking of the sort of eternal appeal of Scooby-Doo, my best friend's sons, who I think, oh, I'm so bad with children, but I would, if I had to guess, they're like two and five. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which actually okay. means they're 14 and 10. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. They're about to graduate college, and uh, they're, they're obsessed with Scooby-Doo. So we watched a bunch last Halloween, and I had the same reaction then, which is I just think it's a really fun movie and i think it's interesting that uh joe you find it kind of slow because i think it moves better than a lot of them but again that's coming from a fan who's watched most of them and if this is like you just dipping a toe and that's a totally different experience yeah i think that for me like that that, that's the thing you're right and i I actually have an interest in like the nostalgia factor here but I, i have watched this movie a lot in the past year because when i get drunk i like to put it on as like comfort food <laughs> okay 
but yeah, I was clocking. So, I mean, it's like what seventy-seven minutes with credits, and I was clocking like when things happen, and it for me it does move at a regular pace. But th- this lag, this lag of a pace that you're talking about, Joe, is what I experienced with the sequel. I think for me it was the reliance on the same kinds of gags. So we've got right. multiple instances of Scooby chasing the cats. There's literally one moment where they scream because they like see something and then everybody comes into the kitchen and then they leave and then they scream again and everybody comes back into the kitchen and i was like why are we doing this folks like <laughs> just have one scene <laughs> so it was it was more i think some of the things that would be appealing to fans because you're like oh my god of course that's a classic gag or that's something that they always do or like you said that's shaggy's line for someone who doesn't have that kind of built-in nostalgia or familiarity with the franchise, I was like, right. Ugh, what is with the storytelling? Why are we doing this? So the joke in the sequel, when they, they have to repeat his oath promise thing, and they have to say like a bunch, that worked for you, I'm assuming. It did, it did. <laughs> I think for me, what works the most is that, I mean, again, like I said, we had seen Scooby-Doo face real launches before, but there's such a subversion to the formula in Zombie Island that really works for me. And it's that you really feel sometimes, even in the opening scene with the moat monster, like uh, when uh, Daphne and Velma almost fall off the castle and like Fred catches them, like you actually feel like there's danger, like there's actual stakes in this film, which is something that, I mean, again, I'm saying that now, I was trying to keep an eye out for it watching it last night or a couple nights ago, and I still feel the same way. And it's something that I just don't think that I've seen in other Scooby properties before this and mostly since. And even, like, the look of the film is darker, like, literally darker overall. And even the score, not not, not the, the songs, but the score itself is very horrific in specifically the zombie moments. Like, it, it feels very foreboding. And again, it's just not something that you get. And so I realize that I may be feeding into, oh, like, it's doing something different and it works for me. And maybe I'm giving that the film too much credit because of that. But, oh, man, it is a home run for me. Well, I'm going to say that I don't think it is just you giving too much credit because in addition to all of the the sort of darker elements you're talking about, I think that pivoting into that allowed them to make some of the best sort of villains or antagonists or whatever you want to call them in the history of Scooby-Doo. They have like a super dark backstory and you understand their complicated emotions (laughs) and, uh, they're like it's way more interesting than like the town rich guy wanted to make more money. Well, right. I mean, the, so I, I mentioned earlier to Joe, I was like, you know, this is a movie where people get forced into a bayou to get eaten by alligators, like in a yeah. children's movie. Mm-hmm. But even the scene whenever like the zombie comes out and Daphne and Fred are trying to like pull the mask off, like that scene where you decap they decapitate a zombie, it's it's something that. Again, as a nine-year-old, I had never seen something like that before outside of Hocus Pocus when Billy the Zombie gets decapitated by a tree branch. (laughs) Yeah, and it takes forever for the comedy in that moment to kick in. Like, they're just pulling on this creature's face. And I, I, I mean, you get to a comedic beat when the head ends up getting tossed around like a hot potato. But even then, the implication is 
we are cavorting with a decapitated head of a real person or like mm-hmm. a reanimated real person. Well, no, so, you're right, though. I'm actually very much inclined to agree with the pair of you on this point. So I didn't, you know, there were things that I didn't like as a, a newcomer to Scooby-Doo, but the darkness and the subversion of the fact that there were actual creatures really worked for me here because it was something a little bit unexpected. And also there's a the darkness, I think, is... Something that we find in animated particularly, but just any kind of children's horror where they're taking their audience seriously and they're not afraid to say, you know what, the world is not a perfect place where everybody just gets away. Like people do die. People get maimed. The For me, the the scene where all of their faces start to melt because their wax effigies oh, are too close to the fire. <laughs> it's so horrifying. Yeah. Well, that is traumatizing Imagine for that as a child. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I mean, even like when when Simone and Lena are dis- and Jacques are dissolving, like when they die, it's and then of course you have to see the zombies go through the same fate, and it's like there's one where it's like a fat tourist zombie, and like mm-hmm. he dissolves, but you see like his layer of belly skin doesn't dissolve, and it just falls <laughs> in his pile of bones. <laughs> Yeah, but, and you're you're meant to be appeased by this idea that Vilma says, oh, well, they're all at peace now. And you're like, that did not look peaceful. And what about the last few hundred years? Dude. Mm-hmm. But I'll throw you this, Joe. So that the, the moment when they decapitate the zombie is at the 50-minute mark of a 77-minute film. So you've basically got the last 25 minutes of all this stuff. Before that, maybe for you is too much standard Scooby-Doo stuff. I, I still argue that it's different enough because you have moments, right? You have like the ghosts like scratching in the wall. You have the scene when Scooby and Shaggy fall in the hole and like the bones come out and reanimate. Like there's Mm -hmm. enough there for me where it's like, okay, this is different and trying something. But again, also the reunion aspect really helps me. Right. Shall we talk about them queer ladies? (laughs) Let's get it. (sighs) Wait, I have a question though. Because I think I had mentioned this before, but I'm hoping you just weren't paying attention to when I was saying it. Did you call them being the villains? And if you did, did you call them being cat people? (laughs) I mean, there's definitely a a bunch of cat-related mythology. So, like, when they show up and there's just, what, 12 stray cats hanging around (laughs) the property, you're like, what's going on here with them there cats? (laughs) I I was primed if only because... uh, shit what's that movie that i love with alice courage oh sleepwalkers sleepwalkers yeah i was very much like oh is this the manor from sleepwalkers <laughs> it's a little bitty <laughs> with a bunch of cats well it is interesting though that in in a franchise that is mostly known for velma being the lesbian character like i remember my, like growing up my mom even told me when she, she was born in 1960 so she would have been nine when the show first premiered. But she said that when she was like, like growing up, all the kids said Velma was a lesbian to her all the time. And she grew up in the Catholic schools of Backwoods, Louisiana. That is so weird to me. I mean, I've heard it as a running gag, but I I always kind of thought that it was just people being like, oh, okay, there's queer coding in there because we want to find a lesbian representation because, I mean, that's what we do as as queer folks or even as sexually curious children. We kind of look to see, like, who's standing a little differently? Who looks a little bit unusual? And that's the person that we think might be on the margins. It's also, like, I kind of always... I don't know. I, I, I like you, had not heard so much about that growing up. And so it was more of an inner thing, internet thing that came to my awareness. 
And I, it, it seems that regardless of your sexuality, there's a lot of sexual projection onto Velma. She is a uh, hmm. uh, straight men. There's so much Velma porn. And oh, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Wait, oh, my God. We need to unpack this. this. <laughs> oh, she's a hugely sexualized character. Literally just like Google hot Velma. <laughs> and, and like it's it's everywhere is it just because she's not daphne like daphne is already obviously sexualized because she's a traditional hot girl yeah i think that's part of it is that she's the alt girl well and you know because in the in the live action film um written by james gunn by the way they put velma in a cleavage wearing like tank top for the last half of the movie and it's a very bizarre thing to see yeah, that makes me uncomfortable I mean, it's Linda Cardellini. Okay, then don't Google hot Velma. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear. But, okay, but do, do, do we sense a lot of queer coding for Velma in this film? Because the film does kind of, kind of give her a romantic foil and bow, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, particularly at the end when they're trying to put a cap on everything. And she's the one who ends up suggesting that, oh, maybe they could date when they get back to the mainland. But... Because it comes at the end, and it feels like, I don't know, you have a bit of screwball romantic comedy kind of chemistry, where she accuses him throughout the whole movie, they hate each other, and then they get together at the end. So I didn't get it as much in this film. I didn't either. It's un- it's mostly her look, right? Okay, yeah. so I will say, generally speaking, I agree. This is not her queerest movie. Mm-hmm. However, it does have one of her and Daphne's most iconic moments of gayness, which is uh, when Velma's floating up in the air, and oh, <laughs> yeah, and Daphne goes, "This just gets better and better." And Velma's trying to cover her skirt and goes, yep. "Maybe from where you're standing." It's, uh, no, you're right, and I wrote because I've I've seen this scene countless times, but I'm watching it. And I'm like, oh right. Again, sorry, I'm going back to the live-action movie, because it's a scene in the live-action movie when Velma gets hung upside down, and, like, her skirt doesn't fall in, like, in the cast commentary, because I listen to that. <laughs> they, they have to taper her skirt up, but I was like, it's really weird that you have that in 2002, but then you have this scene in a 1998 cartoon, and it's it's very focused on Velma's vagina. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. I've seen this movie so many times, and I have not been watching it with queerness in mind, necessarily. But have like watching it, knowing I was going into this podcast, I was like, "Oh, that's real gay." <laughs> it's amazing when you start looking for gay shit. How it yeah. just pops up everywhere. I actually should have caught the line too, maybe from where you're standing, because that's totally. I didn't even think about that as an added layer, but it totally is. It's very bizarre, and you know, now Haley, have you found Velma and Daphne lesbian porn? Oh God, yes. Even I know that. <laughs> one. Yes, that's a thing for sure. Just if there's, if your question is, is there this version of Scooby-Doo porn? The answer is yes. I mean, if your question is, is there blank porn? True. The answer is yes. But that's how you know you've made it, right? Like if there's like, like a, a, no, enough... don't say whatever you're about to say. No, I'm just, if there's enough sites of fan fiction devoted to you, like that, that means you've made it. Okay. I was worried you were going to suggest that there was fan fiction of us. <laughs> I was oh like, my God, no. <laughs> I'm not that, that, yeah. um, that nope. cocky. No. <laughs> Boo cocky? What? But now you've put it out to the universe, so rule 34, is that the rule? Dictates that it will exist? Yes. But with Simone and Lena, I, so I admit, Joe, I feel bad for you because this is the second kind of set of films. I mean, I didn't fight you to put this in, in the programming because I was like, um, Scoob is coming out. This is going to yeah, be my you, chance to, to make you You literally told me that this was happening and I was like, cool, I'll be over in the back fucking the mystery machine. 
Right, <laughs> which we'll get to in a minute, because that's, that's some, like, David Cronenberg crash-level shit. I didn't even jump to any queerness immediately, like, oh, this is why we can cover this. I'm like, no, we're gonna fucking talk about Scooby-Doo and Zombie Island. But yeah, it's these cat ladies. <laughs> it, Just call them puss ladies. I mean, like, it's, they're, they're lesbian pussycats. That's what they are. That's what they're doing, right? Like, like... And, you know, we get people come after us all the time saying, oh, no, they're just really good friends. <laughs> <laughs> they just live on this secluded island for 200 years together. Yeah. What? And really, for me, it goes back to what exactly were they specifically doing so far away, so late at night when everyone else in their village was killed? Okay, no. So they, they, they there's a clip that shows them, like, giving the cat god statue, which, by the way, you know the cat god stuff probably, like put pan- parents' panties in a wad. <laughs> what is this? Some kind of foreign religion? Get them, I mean, <laughs> get this out of here. We'll, we'll get to it as we trace the, the path to return to Zombie Island. Anyway, they're there. They're at the feast. The pirates come in and you hear Simone do her French scream. It's like, ah, <laughs> We. But, I, yeah, they're just off in the bushes watching everyone. Yeah, because they're banging. Yeah, the, real hard. Did you notice that the hands were not visible while they were hiding in the bush? <laughs> the bush trace. hiding in the bush on their island of pussy. It's but not that subtle. is the tagline: <laughs> hiding in bush on the island of pussy. It's not subtle, and I'm shocked. Well, I'm not that shocked because I was pretty young, but like it, it is surprising. It took me so long to notice how gay. Well, I, I kind of love it because when you start to extrapolate it, it's very much like a gothic horror, right? Where you've got an mm-hmm. older lady, like, you know, guiding this younger woman. They live away from everybody in secret with their, you know, their it comes out once a year and they have to let people know. And you're just kind of like, okay, yeah, you you ladies have fun out there doing your thing. Okay, they're living here for 200 whatever fuck years. And are we supposed to believe they're not having sex, be it with each other or anyone else, right? Like, they have to be fucking. I mean, there are the cats and there is Jacques, <laughs> but are either of those two really good opportunities? Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about Jacques. Like, <laughs> they're very busy with the chilies. The chilies keep them so occupied. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's it's interesting. It's definitely one of those things where it would be very easy to overlook it and just be like, these are women who have been trapped here and they've also got this guy that they brought in to do the heavy lifting for them because he wanted to live forever. Sure. That's the surface level. I mean, it's kind of thing too where it's like it's a kid's movie, so why are you thinking about the characters having sex? It's the equivalent (laughs) of like, why are you worried about when the characters are going to the bathroom in a normal movie, you know? That's true. I often equate characters having sex with characters going to the bathroom. All the time. Yeah. That's the move. When you eat the chilies, right? <laughs> Did the chilies gag get old for you? Was that was that not for you, Joe? It was not for me. <laughs> okay. Do we have anything more that we want to say about Zombie Island? I have a question for you guys. And so, like, I have very strong feelings on one part of this, but not the other. But let's say you're casting a live-action version of this. Who should play them? Who should play these gorgeous, clearly lesbian, but queer-coded women? Oh, okay. So, Simone, assuming she can do a French accent, which, I mean, as we've discussed, it has to be better than Adrian Barbeau's. Um, <laughs> I'm imagining, like, a grown-up Kirby from Scream 4, like a Hayden Panettiere with that haircut. Oh. 
Okay. I will say my Simone is Anna Paquin. Ooh. I like that. Mostly just because we've also heard her do a terrible accent. (laughs) (laughs) Just like shit. But Eric is Simone. Eric is Simone. (laughs) Alexander Skarsgård. Sorry. Oh, I I would watch it 100%. Maybe we can make Lena Black. (laughs) Right? Okay. There we go. So this is part of why I think it's hard to cast her because she's completely ambiguous in every way. Like... The accent is fairly nonsense. The skin tone is the most ambiguous it could be. Um, (laughs) I will say for Simone, here are my picks, and I went older than you guys. Okay. Jillian Anderson. Oh, God. Oh. Kate Blanchett. Obviously, Kate Blanchett is made for that. And Elizabeth Debicki. Oh. Oh, Okay, so star power, I think your first two were on point. But for the look, I actually think Elizabeth Debicki is there. Yes. Plus, who doesn't want to see her as like a mildly predatory but hot older lesbian? Well, actually, in quotation marks because she's not older at all. And we're jumping (laughs) ahead too. But uh, so okay, the the power dynamic between Simone and Lena too, like she's her servant. Yeah, that was actually why I didn't read it as sexual initially because i just thought she was like the servant girl she's the help yeah but then when you see that they're on equal playing ground mm, and also maybe there's a better role play going on All right well that's kind of my thing though right is it like a bdsm cat people lesbian thing i'm not here to kink shame again always yes <laughs> Did we want to comment on the race at all, or do we want to just abandon that? What race? Yeah, that's the issue. Yeah. <laughs> now, granted, though, we can't like we can't hold this film to like make a racial commentary, but it's Louisiana, it's New Orleans, which I don't know the exact statistic, but it has a very large black population. <laughs> yes, and it's on a plantation, right? <laughs> Yeah. It's not a cotton plantation. It, it's it's a pepper plantation. That still counts. Very important distinction. Yeah. I think it's lot. just emblematic of where animation is at this point in time, where it was like, our default is white. Why would we introduce anything else into that? Yes. We Lena got to be off white. I mean, really, your people of color are the gray zombies. <laughs> now, wait, Haley, who was your Lena casting? I don't have one. I can't think of the right fit. I mean, if we want to go overly sexual, the default answer is just Jennifer's body. Oh, Megan Fox. She's sexy. She's got the hair. But it's also keeping it like real problematic in 2020 because she is lily white. I can see that. My only thing is I, I view Megan Fox as a bit more, I don't want to say strong than Lena, but... Mm. Like, I feel like it would be, like, she would have to play meek. Because even though Lena isn't meek, up until her reveal, she is. So I think that would be an interesting, if maybe challenging, role for Megan Fox to play. Right. Because I feel like Megan Fox exudes a lot of confidence. Okay, I've got it. Simone is Angela Bassett. Because we've heard her do her accent from American American Horror Horror Story Story. Coven. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then, yeah, you can cast whatever, like starlet you want waif yeah because <laughs> angela bassett's just gonna literally dominate well, anybody who comes into her circumference i was gonna say the, the funny connection too with adrian barbeau and i didn't know this uh, she voiced catwoman in batman the animated series oh, i think oh. i did know that also random fact lena is voiced by tara strong who is bubbles from the powerpuff girls timmy from the fairly odd parents harley quinn and all the batman arkham video games 
and dill pickles in Rugrats. <laughs> I'm just listing facts, but I just think it's, I, I, I find voice work so fucking fascinating. It's so bizarre to me. You gotta be versatile. Mm-hmm. I mean, go back and listen to our Paranorman act episode because Brenna talks about voice work in that one. And also it's our only other children's film that we've done. Well, that's why I push for this one. It's kids. It's just funny because you claim to hate zombie films, but you seem to love children's zombie films. No, right? Isn't that a thing? Like, I prefer zombies to be, like, nice. (laughs) All right. Well, maybe that's a good segue to when they're not so nice uh, when we get to return to Zombie Island. Okay. Yeah. So, quick, (laughs) quick segue. So, basically, this film is super successful. The creative team was like, cool, we're going to do another one. And Warner Brothers is like, hey, that's great. Now that we know it can make a lot of money, we need you to do a couple things. One, tone down the horror. That's not good. <laughs> and I, I I have to believe, and maybe I'll disagree, that they had to have gotten letters from parents about this movie. I'm sure they did. I, I can't. I worked at movie theaters for years and like. Aside from people who were offended by violence, people who were offended on behalf of their children were the most angry and most common pissed off customer. Yeah. So they brought in an outside screenwriter for The Witch's Ghost, which pissed everyone off. And there was way more corporate oversight onto the whole shenanigan deal. And so I actually rewatched all these MOOC animation movies. So I, 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 and Witch's Ghost actually held up the worst for me. It has the benefit of the Hex Girls, which is great. But as a whole, like, it's a really good third act, like, preceded by two really dull first two acts, despite Tim Curry's presence. Hmm. So that's that. So that was like a, a production, like, fraught with tension. Then they had complete creative control again with Alien Invaders when Warner Bros. was like, fine, y'all do it, but you have to make it friendly. Which means that the middle one didn't do as well financially. I guess, but you know what? And Haley, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I feel like when you bring up these films, Witch's Ghost comes up a lot. Like in a good way or a bad way? In a good way. I mean, so when we had BJ on for Phantom of the Paradise, she referenced the Hex Girls at one point. But that was the only part she referenced. And that's what I'm saying, though. So people that, that hold this movie in high regard, they're remembering the Hex Girls but nothing else about the movie. I do still like Witches Ghost a lot. I find that that period of films, those four films right there are pretty great and hold up really well. But the Hex Girls have like become... Even on Twitter, it's way more popular than I would expect to see it. This like If you loved the Hex Girls, you're some version of queer now. It's a guarantee. Mm-hmm. Well... It was funny watching it again as a 31-year-old, because they're, they're, they're eco-goths. That's how they self-describe themselves <laughs> in the movie. And you just didn't get see any goths, period, uh, eco or of other varieties, <laughs> in, in children's movies, right? Not that I remember, no. It, it's definitely, like, I, I think it's part of appealing to that sort of outsider sensibility that I think probably a lot of younger kids who were drawn to the horror element already felt about themselves. Mm -hmm. But in like, uh, they're definitely animated hot way. (laughs) Right. Yeah, they're definitely hypersexualized. There is a whole thing with like Fred and Daphne and like Fred has a crush on Thorn and Daphne's (laughs) jealous and that tends to happen a lot in these movies. (laughs) They also, so they had, the scriptwriter came in and with that movie, he he did it where it was. Because the whole thing of that movie is they go to a town, Tim Curry brings them there, and there's a witch's ghost that's, like, you know, haunting people. Oh, oops, actually, it's the whole town doing a masquerade for tourism. 
that was the end. And so the people from Zombie Island were like, that's bullshit. So they added a third act where the witch is actually real. So you get the mask reveal at the end of the second act. And then, oops, Tim Curry's a secret bad guy. We're going to actually raise this witch's ghost and she's going to be evil. That happens in the last 20 minutes of Witch's Ghost. And that's the, that's the most Zombie Islandish part of that film, which is what makes it work. Right. Alien Invaders is the gang going through Roswell, and yep, they yeah. get abducted by aliens. There's some stuff. So that's Scoob. <laughs> kind of, well, so I actually hated this one growing up, and I really liked it. Rewatching it this week, it was kind of a weird, like, what was I doing as a child type scenario? Was it the aliens? Well, it it's really a, a romantic comedy between Shaggy and this hippie girl, who spoiler alerts revealed to be the actual alien, and she's a good alien. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, leave it to Shaggy to fall in love with an alien. <laughs> it's pretty fun. Then there's Cyber Chase, which is the last of the MOOC animated films, and the last film for, like, eight more films to use a real quote-unquote monster, where the gang gets transported into a video game that's made for them, and also the characters are them. So, like, the whole climax of the film is them meeting their video game doppelgangers who are from the 60s and 70s, fighting a bunch of their old monsters, and this quote-unquote phantom virus. It's really, really, really cool, and I kind of love it. It's my second favorite after Zombie Island. So that's like 2002, 2001, I think, is when that happens. And then we have these, you know, 25 films (laughs) between that and this. And if you haven't seen any of them, I imagine watching Return to Zombie Island is a bit jarring. Because I watched the uh, Kiss movie recently, and, and Daphne has a... Sorry, the the Kiss Scooby-Doo movie. Which, by the way, there was apparently a Kiss movie, like a TV movie in the 70s, where they had to like save a theme park from an evil inventor. And it was produced by Hanna-Barbera, but it was a live-action film, and it's considered one of the worst films ever made, and Kiss even hates it. But Gosh. it's like a cult film now. So because of that, which, that's why they have this Kiss movie that came out in 2015, where the gang meets Scooby-Doo. And, yeah, Daphne's, like, obsessed with Kiss and is in love with Star Child, but Fred doesn't like Kiss because he likes the boy band Ascot 5 or something. (laughs) How's that land for you? It's it's a thing. (laughs) There's your queer reading of Fred. There actually, no, there is a meta moment in the first Zombie Island when he, like, almost puts on the Ascot and he looks himself in the mirror and goes, nah. <laughs> That's the level of meta I enjoyed in in Zombie Island. Was it was just the right amount of winking without totally piercing through the veil of being a, a, a I don't know a story that took itself a certain amount of serious. I agree with you, and that's why I, I liken Zombie Island to Scream. And your earlier connection with Scream Three to Return to Zombie Island is very apt because that's exactly what it feels like to me. Oh, yeah, because it's basically a social commentary on Hollywood through the Alan Smith character. And then we've also got these doppelgangers of everybody running around from the first movie. But also Fred has his own Parker Posey-like character in Seaver, who could have been more funny. And that would have made the joke land even better. I think it would have been funnier if it was either Daphne or Velma with the stunt double. I mean... Typically, you wouldn't give your least interesting sort of most milquetoast character a double because then you're going to end up with two boring characters. I think that that Return to Zombie Island thinks that Fred is more interesting than he is when he's actually the least interesting member of the group. I mean, his storyline is that he wants to fuck his car. Like, this is what they could come (laughs) up with for him. 
Like, how Which, do we make this guy interesting? He wants to stick it in the tailpipe. The funny thing is, too, in Mystery Incorporated, his thing is that he's obsessed with traps. He's basically like a friendly jigsaw. <laughs> and, like, he keeps ditching Daphne on dates to go build a trap or to research traps. And that is dumb, but it is kind of entertaining because it's, like, a through line for the series. Whereas this is just, like, a, it's a sexual fetish. It is. It really is. And it's hard to read it in any other con like in any other lens because he's just so obsessed with this fucking car. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great transition into uh, Return to Zombie Island. So in this more adult oriented meta outing, the gang is asked by Scooby and Shaggy to pledge an oath to stop investigating mysteries long enough for a vacation. They then immediately win an all-expenses-paid trip, courtesy of Elvira, which was an unexpected delight. No, okay, wait. So here's our levels of meta, though. The opening of this scene, they're facing a werewolf who is revealed to be Old Man Withers' son, Young Man Withers. And that works for me. <laughs> but... <laughs> it was like the I still know what you did last summer of Scooby-Doo. Yes! Ouch. <laughs> Ben's son. <laughs> yeah. They don't even know what the capital of Brazil is. They don't even know what Moonstar Island is. That, <laughs> ugh, oh my God. Okay, yes. <laughs> okay, so they win this all expenses paid trip, courtesy of Elvira, which I loved for the record. I, I, I don't, like, this is obviously very meta. I don't have a connection to Elvira because I didn't grow up watching her. I don't, I've never seen her movies because I think there's like two, but I don't, I don't know what, what she does outside of like she's ba well i guess joe bob is basically her but like for rednecks and she's like you know she started it i enjoy this cameo i just don't have a connection to elvira yeah whereas i cackled when i saw her because i love i haven't seen the second movie i love the first film and i just think she's so amazing and every time i see her i also get really frustrated and annoyed that she doesn't have her own joe bob style show i think she applied applied appealed <laughs> i don't know to shudder and yeah. they said no i think shudder said no and that's that's Ugh. not my I... favorite thing i've ever heard about shudder a am i no. right in that like have you heard that before i want to say I that i've know. seen that written somewhere i think i've seen her saying that she was shopping a show around and that she was trying to get meetings with different places and nobody was biting and it's like well you would obviously go to netflix you would obviously go to shutter. shutter so i mean and again it might just be like we have money for one we've already got this existing relationship but i just also think if you could give a really prominent female horror fan an opportunity to you know like because she's sort of the same as joe bob where like mm -hmm. they had their popularity and it's kind of like waned and and gone up and down over the years but really like there's no reason why she couldn't be as successful as Joe Bob in terms of having that kind of show. And you can't tell me that the money isn't there or that the ratings wouldn't be good. I think there's two things. And Haley, feel free to disagree with me. I think one mm -hmm. is that she's a woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Two, I feel like her biggest fans are gay men. Mm. And I'm saying that not from experience, but because it seems like the most people that I see talk about her online are gay men. And I'm wondering if that's too small of a demographic for them. It's right. definitely possible. I, I do see also, I feel like that she has three fan bases, which are like gay men, uh, men, straight men who whacked it to her a lot when they were teenagers. Yep. Dem titties. Right. 
them titties and uh, girls who wanted to be her. And even so, maybe that's not like hitting whatever charts they need to hit to greenlight a project. But I do, I mean, it's such a time right now, at least it seems so to me in my social circles and my internet circles, this like time of girls who were alt girls in the 90s and 80s sort of reclaiming their gothiness and their witchiness Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. leaning into the aesthetic. And I definitely think there's a market there. Well, and it's also like, it's a time where can we believe that we don't have this for a prominent female figure in our community because I'm looking around and I'm like, why are we still the fucking sausage club here? It's like late night television and apparently horror hosts are only men. (laughs) And Joe, like you, I I didn't grow up with Joe Bob either. I honestly had no idea who Joe Bob was until his like new show came out. But like you voice concerns about like what, like about that persona in general. Um, And I, I get them. But, like, my husband has, like, grew up with him and, like, loves him. So it's, like, one of those things where it's, like, oh, I think he's funny sometimes. He's inappropriate mm-hmm. and, like, does a lot of stereotypes, but it's also, like, the shtick, you know? Yeah. Whereas I feel like from what I've seen of Elvira, it's a bit more... I don't want to use the phrase family-friendly. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, it's a, it, it's less... It, it's more inoffensive, I feel like. Yeah, it's a little bit more nudge-nudge-wink-wink wink sex jokes. Right. It's, like, burlesque Yeah, it's burlesque meets Fright Night. How did we get on this? Why are we talking about this? It's a tangent. It's okay. (laughs) Continue your plot summary of this lesser sequel. So they they win this all-expenses-paid trip to Moonstar Island, which is not at all the same island as the first one. Come wait, come on. You're you're like, y'all, y'all think... Because my thing was, and again, logic doesn't matter. They got on a plane, presumably, to somewhere... That mm-hmm. they thought was an island, but it was actually Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because they don't they don't have the mystery machine in this, so they would have had to get there another way. Which, by the way, Fred sells at the very beginning of the Curse of the Thirteenth Ghost, and he's going through he's going through withdrawal. <laughs> well, he's going through an existential crisis in that movie um, because in the TV show The Thirteenth Ghost of Scooby Doo, it was just Daphne, Shaggy, and um, you know scooby and so she was the leader in that show like she was the fred so in this movie daphne takes the lead like she's the de facto lead of the film and so fred without his mystery machine and without his leadership role is going through an existential crisis which continues in this film right interesting i mean to me this was kind of one of the things that made this film stand out so much because you're so used to seeing daphne and fred as this inseparable duo and any of their plotline is going to be about their relationship and in this one it was like so are they broken up and he's just fucking that car now what is happening here i appreciate the weirdness in a scooby-doo property which is fine this just doesn't make a but hey here's the thing the characters have definitely, like, so Fred's got the car thing, Velma, so uh, around, like, 2013, 14, 15, like, around that time, um, I think around the time they switched her to Kate McCucci, they made Velma's trait as, oh, she's a rationalist. Like, she does not believe in real ghosts. So she's the Scully. Yes, 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 yes. But there's a part of one of the movies, which is the Goblin King, where she sees a ghost, and she's so overwhelmed with not like with it not being a rational thing that she passes out for like an act of the movie. Oh my God. So they go with that for this. And it's because of her that they start retconning some stuff. And I don't like that. 
Right, okay. So we get to Moonstar Island, and eventually, upon disembarking the ferry, they are warned by local islanders to get out, and the mysteries begin <laughs> piling up. Get out! Hmm, that's odd. <laughs> like, that's the first response. <laughs> that's what we're trying to do. Get out and get some sun. <laughs> so, you know, honestly, a lot of the humor in the first act does work for me a good bit. Like, I chuckled quite a few times. I think the movie is the most successful in this first act. I agree. And so it's right around the time where they discover that concierge Alan Smith, who is actually film director, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Alan Smithy, who, if you don't understand that reference, go back and listen to our Hellraiser 4 episode. Yeah, fuck yeah. Um, So it's right around the end of the first act that we discover that basically he has lured them to this island so that they can shoot a low-budget horror movie. Actually, well, maybe, but it's 41 minutes in, which is essentially just over half the movie. (laughs) Okay. They did basically a, uh, they did a, you know, a standard episode in that first 40 minutes, right? And then they Mm -hmm. tried to make it something different, like they unmasked the real guy. And then it was, mm-hmm. for some reason, another half hour. I think had the other half hour, like, been, oh, we're actually facing cat creatures, I think I would have liked the movie more. But because it's just another fucking hoax, minus the one cat creature who's apparently real and we'll probably never see again. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not even, like, the, the script, sorry, the, the the jokes that bother me, it, it mostly is, like, the retconning of that original film. Like, I really, really hate it. As a fan who holds that original film in such a high regard, and granted, maybe they're thinking, oh, well, the audience of that film, they're in their 30s now. We're now marketing towards people who are in their late single-digit age and early 10s, <laughs> like, now, so we don't have to cater to those people. And it's, I don't I, know. I feel like what they're doing is they're acknowledging that folks like you who are so intimately familiar because that first piece is a canonical text, they're saying, well, they know to expect that these cat people are real. So the subversion, the meta-ness of it is to reveal the opposite is true and that they're, oh, we're actually going the other way and it's back to people in mass. I'm not saying it's successful. I'm just saying that maybe that's the thinking. I get what you're saying. It's annoying. I can imagine as a fan, you're looking at this being like, what? Well, because Zombie Island to me feels like a huge step forward for the franchise where it's like embracing new, a new status quo. Mm -hmm. And granted, yes, this is 21 years later. (laughs) Except in the world of the film, it's a few months later. (laughs) But that to me, yeah, it's like you took two, two steps forward and then like 10 steps back. And yes, the film ends with everyone except for Velma, like, believing that it's real. But even the fact that Velma, because this happens in The 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, even the fact that Velma walks away thinking, nope, none of it was real, it's fine. That really bothers me, especially given Zombie Island, like, what happens there and, like, how it ends. Nothing Mm -hmm. about Velma's status at the end of that movie would suggest that she would be not thinking it was real, if that makes any sense. I think it makes her look way stupider than Velma should ever look. Yes! Yeah, she looks full-blown dumb. When you've got yeah. Daphne <laughs> being like, oh, she dumb, you're in danger. What are you doing? <laughs> you have doing? retconned past the point of making your characters I, who I they think, are. <laughs> I think if Fred was that character, like more of the skeptic, it would make sense because he was yeah. the skeptic in Zombie Island. Mm-hmm. And because he's he's never been like the genius of the bunch. Her whole right, role right. is to be super fucking smart. I don't. Yeah. 
I don't understand yeah. that writing. It, it feels like a betrayal of the character. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's a dangerous message, too, if you think about this as a movie for kids, where you've got the smartest person in the room being your stupidest character. Well, that, that kind of goes back to that article, you know, where it's like, oh, it's kids against parents, kids against the establishment. But then you have the character who should know better, not knowing better. <laughs> it's so frustrating to me. I think the other issue, too, is that so much of what works in that original film, and I'm saying this as me, the person yeah. who is like the Scooby-Doo outsider, is the darkness and the danger and the tragedy in the story of the cat people. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they're villains, and they want the treasure, but at the end of the day, they're also real people who have lived this horrible life for 200 years, and then when you get to to return to Zombie Island by suggesting that it's not really real, you're just like, oh, okay, we're washing away all of that. And also, these characters are literally never in danger. They're doing a fucking, you know, jump over a goddamn hotel in this movie. Like, it's action movie ridiculous watching the 13th ghost movie helped me put this movie into more perspective because just to catch you up and hey i don't know if you've ever seen this version but the 13 ghosts of scooby-doo was a one season show it was 13 episodes vincent price was the lead character um i'm sorry <laughs> okay. the lead actor playing vincent van Gogh. but the whole concept of the show was yeah you had scooby-doo find a chest of demons and it released 13 demons into the world and so every episode after the first one was them catching a new demon the finale was them catching the 12th one. They never caught the 13th one. So this, that was 1985. And so this movie that came out last year was the 13th ghost. And what they do in that movie is just like what they do in this one, where basically Velma's like, oh, none of it's real, none of it's real, none of it's real. And in the end, it's it kind of ends with Velma saying, oh, you were all like inhaling some kind of gas or something that made you hallucinate all those 12 ghosts that you put up in those 12 episodes of that show. Mm. And I'm like, why are you going to retcon that? <laughs> it yeah. makes me so angry. It's on par with it was all a dream, which is never yes. satisfying. Yeah. Sorry, that's like a trope that I really hate. Oh, because it's the worst, least satisfying, just robs you of any joy thing to do. But mm-hmm, I do, yeah. I having not seen Scoob, when I did that Edit Bay visit, they said something I liked a lot, which is like that it, just kind of existed in its own space and wasn't retconning or changing anything that came before but acknowledging that these characters are different characters at different times i hope that holds true and that the movie just stands on its own and doesn't feel the need to go like this never actually happened well i think i think that's the thing though right like that that that's easier for me to swallow yeah. Whereas if you if you have a property like these movies where you're referencing previous iterations of the franchise, don't retcon them because that's fucked up. <laughs> and that's my professorial way of saying that. Well, that's how you get into like Halloween territory, right? Where yeah. we're doing wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're referencing things, but we're also saying you don't need to know or have seen any of this. And you're kind of like, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Well, honestly, in this film, my favorite part was the recap of the first movie with the new animation style. We know we were there. <laughs> 
I'm just saying, it's really cool. And like the, the sarcastic way with which they put it, where it's like, oh, like, yes, let's tell this story. Jesus Christ. Yeah, which is better than the the usual shoehorned way that they say, oh, here's how we're going to catch you up. It's like, we'll do it over the opening credits, or which they also kind of do because they have stills. But See, that didn't work as well for me because they're still doing exactly that. They're just drawing more attention to it. And I don't know, for me, it made it like mm. more annoying. I just said, mm-hmm. yes, this is a trope, but you are not subverting it. You're just indulging in it doubly so and pointing it out. If you had to give this film a star rating, Haley, what would you give it? How many stars out of how many stars? Five stars. Five, Five stars. stars. Oh, golly. Maybe two. Not a fan. I gave it a three because I was being generous. But yeah, I'm, I'm there with you. <laughs> Which, but Joe, you gave it a three too, but that was like you liking it. <laughs> yeah, more or less. Because he gave the original two. <laughs> oh, harsh. Hurts my heart. I, I'm sorry. I found the original just a bit of a slog. <laughs> it's, again, I, I can imagine, yeah, for you not watching, how old would you have been in 98? Uh, 98, I would have been 16. Yeah, so, the, the, yeah, you were not. <laughs> No, I was not the you target, not the target audience for that. <laughs> I was I was getting into like Scream Two. I was not right. excited for this, and it makes sense. I mean, I'm not offended by your rating. I think you're incredibly wrong, but I'm not offended by it. <laughs> well, what else is new? That's just every Thursday for us. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm sorry. Continue the the rest of this plot. No, I mean I. I feel like we have covered what we need to say about Return to Zombie Island. (laughs) My thing, you know, I I wrote, they solved the mystery 41 minutes into this movie. It's all just a movie. And like Haley said, it goes on for another 30 minutes. It feels padded. Like we took an episode, we stretched it a little bit, and it's pretty good. And then we added a bunch of extra shit to make it a feature. And, and again, yeah, the subplot with Fred fucking his car. There's a couple things like I love like Velma. Is that cat hair? And I wrote, how do you know that? <laughs> because but she, overall, like the Cat Island ladies, is a lesbian. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, my God. The secret pussy connection. Exactly. <laughs> Always count on the cat. They're all just like on an email thread. <laughs> I mean, hey, because hey. A better movie version of this would have been somehow that Simone and Lena get resurrected. Like, that would have been a better version of this movie. Yes, I agree. Particularly when we're already doing doppelganger action. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you appreciate the yes and improv jokes? <laughs> yes, I feel like I should have sent a clip back to you and been like, do you get it now? Oh, I get it. I saw it. Sorry, Haley, that's a running gag that we have because I'm really bad at yes ending mm. and Joe likes to make fun of me for it a lot. Big like improv Trace's fan. default response is, Mm-mm. okay. Whatever, and then move on. <laughs> yeah. And then he confessed to me a couple weeks ago it's because he's usually on his phone, which means I'm literally oh. podcasting no, 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 to myself. No, 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 no. I said <laughs> when I sound disinterested and I'm not listening to what you're saying, it's because I'm checking my phone. Yeah, that's all the time. <laughs> Those are two different things. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, uh, these movies. Um, love the original. The sequel is a big letdown. And who knows what we have in store for us with Scoob. Cautiously optimistic, ma'am. I just want to see this franchise thrive and go on for 100 years. I mean, it's halfway there. Yeah. Oh, and I feel like with uh, with HBO Max coming up, there's no doubt we're going to get a bunch of Scooby stuff. Oh, Why right, HBO Max? Yeah. Because they're a, a Warner. That's the 
corporate subsidiary. Oh, whatever gotcha, gotcha. giant they've created is its own HBO. And Haley, we realized we didn't really get to dive much into your Buffy stuff. Is oh, there yeah. anything you really had like, like yeah? By by all means, like let's talk about it. Well, I guess I'll just like highlight my little <laughs> spiral of Scooby Doo queerness and Buffy that I find amusing. Do it. <laughs> so. You know, obviously, Scooby-Doo is the genesis. Uh, we have all these characters that people have imprinted themselves upon. And it's it's very interesting because, you know, there's people who say that Fred and Shaggy are gay or that Velma is gay or that Daphne and Velma are in a relationship or that Fred is asexual or obviously he wants to fuck his car. There are so many <laughs> things to read into. Uh, but then from that, we get Buffy the Scooby gang. In Scooby, we have this whole other, or, or in, you know, the Scooby gang there, we have this whole other conversation about queerness that's really essential to television and which people read different things into different characters and the whole is Willow a lesbian or bisexual debate, which I find frustrating. And um, But that's also why she's the Velma, right? Right. Yeah. Or Okay, but see, will we call her the Velma, or is Giles the Velma, or is Giles the Fred? It's kind of tricky because, like, who is Xander in this? A piece of shit. He's the he's the he's the Shaggy. Yeah, really? Yeah, because no, so. Daphne is Buffy, uh, Velma is Willow, Shaggy is Xander. I'm gonna say Giles is Fred because he's the quote unquote leader of the group. Yeah, and he's kind right. of like he's like the daddy Fred, right? Like if Fred was taking right. over the parent role of that dynamic you talked about a little more yes and mr pointy is scooby-doo <laughs> <laughs> right and the master is old man withers correct to continue my spiral so we have these conversations around buffy we have the queer coding around buffy and faith anyway it's obviously a very essential mm, yeah. second scooby gang to the queer culture then from that we have sarah michelle geller goes to be in the live-action movie with Linda Cardellini, in which oh, right. James Gunn and Linda Cardellini suggested their interpretation of the character was queer in interviews after the fact. And then from that, Linda Cardellini went on to be in the... Um, why is my brain failing me like such a moron right now? Are you going to say oh. Mystery Incorporated? Yes, Mystery, Mystery Incorporated. Incorporated show. <laughs> yes! Thank oh you. God. Wait, I told Joe about this before you logged on earlier, and I was like, no, okay, I'm sorry, continue, continue. Okay, it's I'm like at the end. Anyway, Linda Cardellini goes on to be on Mystery Incorporated, which is like the closest any property has gotten to formally acknowledging that Velma is gay, and she voiced the character that would be Velma's queer love interest. Okay, mm. but it's hot dog water. Yes, it is. <laughs> and it's wonderful and moving and, again, like, wildly attractive. Well, because they start that show with Velma and Shaggy being in a relationship, but the, the, the barrier in the relationship is that Shaggy wants to hang out with Scooby all the time, so Velma is, a, is jealous of Scooby. <laughs> and then when they finally break up, like, yeah, then they bring in hot dog water, and, I, okay, so... Last year at South by Southwest, um, they premiered The Curse of La Llorona there. And not a good movie. But they brought in the whole cast, and there was a cocktail party for press beforehand. And I was yeah. like, oh my god, I have to meet Linda Cardellini. 
and I was so fucking hungover from the night before. I get that. <laughs> I take this like Uber down from my apartment and I'm like almost going to like, throw up in this Uber. I'm like so upset. And I get to the hotel where it's at, which is across the street from the theater. And Megan Navarro, who also writes for Bloody, she's there. And I, I walk into this, like, ballroom. And Megan is like, Trace, get the fuck over here right now. And I go to her. And I'm like, why? I'm really hungover. And she goes, she grabs my head and turns my head. And literally standing right next to me is Linda Carter. Yeah. <laughs> and I finally, I got to meet her. And I, I held up my vomit. It was really good. And she was so lovely that night. And I got to tell her, I was like, thank you so much for doing Scooby-Doo. You are, like, just like how Matthew Lillard is Shaggy, because he's a great Shaggy. You're a fantastic Velma. And I really like you as hot dog water. <laughs> yes. Yeah, she was awesome. I was at that same party, and she was so lovely. And I'm so glad you got to say I love you as hot dog water to a human being. <laughs> but seriously um joe and listeners if you've never seen mystery incorporated it is two seasons i think they're like 26 episodes each but they're you know the Oof. i know but they're the easy 22 minute episodes so it's like watching three right. seasons of parks and rec and it's just a really even as an adult even if you it's funnier if you know scooby-doo because there's a lot of self-referential humor but not obnoxious like it is in return to zombie island Oh, I forgot the last step of my cycle of the Buffy Scooby cycle, which is that now Mystery Incorporated has become the show that's regularly recommended to Buffy fans. No shit. Yeah, it's a big thing online. It's like, if you love Buffy, you're going to love Mystery Incorporated. That's it. And so I'm still to this day really upset that we never got a third season of that show, but it does end well enough to where it works as one 56 episode series. 52, 56, I don't know, one of those. I don't do numbers, but I agree with the sentiment. I'm I'm equal parts, like, not okay with it, but mostly happy. I don't really know why it was canceled, to be honest. But yeah, but Mr. Incorporated is the closest that I felt to being, like, a, a mature Scooby-Doo since the first Zombie Island film. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty high praise. It deserves it. Like, and Haley I will vouch for it. Like, it, it, it it's... Even if you aren't a Scooby fan, it's still a really good show. But it's obviously better if you know Scooby-Doo lore. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's Twin that. Peaks. Hmm? I missed what you said. I I just said it's like it's like Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah, it's exactly like Twin Peaks. So, um, it's <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting the parallel, but it is uh sort of like <laughs> A really good show. I don't know what to say. I don't understand the parallel. Explain to me. It's okay, Haley. Just say no. whatever. No, I. <laughs> no, it's just because it, it's like this weird town and weird things happen and blah blah blah. Their their foil is. The, I mean, th- this isn't Twin Peaks, but like it's no. it's this it's this evil owl. Wait, no. There's, oh my god. Th- no, their their villain is Mister E, like Mister, and then the letter E. But then the villain is like this anthropomorphic owl. <laughs> So it's, it's just a little weird, is what you're saying. It's okay. very weird. It's a very weird show. <laughs> and I guess I get what you're saying about, like, the town where things are just a little bit wonky. Well, and everyone has secrets, and... Yeah. And there are, because I... I mean, spoiler... I think Hot Dog Water gets murdered. <laughs> Does she wash up on the beach in a plastic bag? <laughs> Not quite as much. Okay. But it's... It's yeah, it's just a town full of secrets and things going on and run amok. And it's not even Coolsville, which is the normal hometown of the Scooby Gang. It's something else, like Crystal Cove or something. Mm. Anyway, mm. sorry. Okay, that's <laughs> that's our diatribe. Good diatribe, folks. I liked it. 
that's enough about that. Um, thank you, Joe, for indulging me on this. And before we announce what we're covering next week, Haley, would you like to like plug anything or talk about anything? Sure. Please check out The Witching Hour on Collider if you enjoy my particular lack of eloquence. And uh, <laughs> I, I host that with the lovely Perry Nimeroff, and we always have a good time. And it's my favorite hour of every week, so I'd love if you would join me. And otherwise, Aww. you can read what I attempt to write on Collider and watch me not tweet on Twitter at Haley Fouch. And all the SEO that comes from Collider, right? That's all you? I mean, a lot of it. I, I do I, I do <laughs> like data. <laughs> nice. Big nerd. Big She's nerd. a Belmed heart. Yeah, 100%. Um, well, that's great. Well, uh, thank you again for joining us on this. Um, this was a very special episode to me, and so I'm glad that you have a fellow Scooby head on this episode. Um, it was very refreshing, because clearly I would not have gotten that from Joe. Oh, God. <laughs> it would have been, like, dead weight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy to have done it. I haven't really got to nerd out about Scooby like that, except for with the possibly two- and five-year-olds for a really long time. So that was a delight. Oh, well, that's just Trace. Yeah. Fingers crossed that we get some Scooby heads listening to this, and it's not our least downloaded episode, because that did happen to me with Reefer Madness. Uh, um, <laughs> hey, it got more downloads than lots of other stuff. All cheerleaders die. Um, <laughs> if you'd like to contact us, you can visit our Horror Queers Facebook page or join our exclusive Horror Queers Facebook group. Tweet us at Horror Queers or Instagram us at Horror Queers. It's pretty fucking obvious by this point. Or email us at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. If you have two seconds, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or write a review. You can buy uh, Horror Queers merch like t-shirts, stickers, mugs, pillows, and other shit at tpublic.com. That is T-E-E-Public.com. And if you want more content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes. Um, normally those would be on recently released horror films, but since nothing's coming out in May... We're going to do um, what we've been doing, I'm sorry, a possession theme. So we've got episodes on the taking of Deborah Logan and Insidious, and an audio commentary on the unrated cut of the Evil Dead remake. Again, I have to specify, the unrated cut, not the theatrical cut. Mm -hmm. Five extra minutes of gore. Five extra minutes of gore. Joe, mm -hmm. what are we talking about next week? Well, Trace, I'm going to ask for your hand... So that I can put a corsage on it, because we're going to go to the prom. Look, bitch, we are crossing off a seminal slasher film that I have never seen. So we are digging into the queerness of the heart of Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. And we might be the last podcast ever covering that, but I don't care, because it's super fucking fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I will allow it. <laughs> Good. So everyone check into that. Uh, it is streaming for free on Amazon Prime and other places. Not in high definition, unfortunately, because there's no fucking Blu-ray of it. That's fantastic. Yep. <laughs> um, and once again, Haley, thank you very much. And uh, on that note, I think we can cross out Scooby-Doo on Zombie Islands. Yeah, these, these double movies are a tricky one. So uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll cross out for her queers. Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy, but disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, the 
queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.